Have you ever made a promise to someone and, and failed to, to hold up that promise, to, to keep your promise? Or someone made a promise to you and, and forgot about it or, or, or failed you? And we see often our children, they are quick to make promises. I, I promise to clean up my room. I promise to finish my ho homework. I, I promise to do this and that. And, and they simply forget or unable to, to keep those promises. Even as, as we grow older, we make sometimes promises. When I got newly wed, I made a lot of promises to my, to my wife. And I said, I, will prom I promise I will never do this or that again. And, and at some point, she, she didn't believe me because so often I, I failed her. Um, and you get, you get wiser with, with the time, and you don't say, I promise, but you say, I'll try my best or try harder, right? Um, so often we are being disappointed or we disappoint our spouse or, or children or, or parents. Here in this text, we see Jesus, and we, we, we think about the promises of Jesus. In, in, Peter, in, in Second Peter, the Apostle Peter, he reminds us of the, the, the precious and great promises that we've received from God. And, and those promises have power. We, we rely on them. But Is Jesus really faithful to his word? Is Jesus faithful to his promises? That is, that is the question. What, what about Jesus' promises? And, and here in this, in this text, Jesus just finished his, his high priestly prayer where he, he promised to not lose one sheep. And he promises so often in, in his gospel to never leave or forsake his flock, his, his people. The people of Israel, us. <coughs> Excuse me. And here, his his promises are being being tested. They are under scrutiny, as he's being being pressed from all from from every side. And and we will see how how his promises are being unfolded and and being fulfilled, and how faithful he is to his very prom, very own promises. And we see here in this, in this text how he, faced by opposition, upholds his word and is faithful. And so let's, let's look at this text and we'll begin by the first point, Jesus facing opposition. What we see here in the beginning is really the world against Jesus and his disciples. As I just mentioned, he finished his prayer where he, he prayed to God, and it is a very dramatic moment. It is a very severe moment in, in, in Jesus' life. And now he, he leaves this place, and he takes his disciples, and he, brings him, and he brings them, and he leads them to this very special place, this, this garden. And it is a place that Jesus and his disciples, as John mentions here, often visited. They, they knew that garden. It was, it was a place um, where they had good memories of. And, and, and every time they came together, they had sweet and deep and meaningful fellowship. No doubt they would pray together and, and ask Jesus about his kingdom and what his kingdom is, is going to be like and, and what's the nature of his, 
of his ministry and all these things. It was a place of genuine friendship. Every time they would come into this garden, they would, they would be glad and joyful. This place again, with, with those memories. And I, I'm sure we all have places like that. Even maybe as children, we had places where we would, we would retreat and had just a good time. And when we come back and, and we see that place, we are filled with, with joy just thinking what we experienced. This was a place like that. Treasured, happy memories. It was a place characterized by beauty and intimacy with our Savior, Jesus Christ. But this is about to change, isn't it? This place will be stained with betrayal and sin. And, and John, the Apostle John, he creates this beautiful picture. And, and we see in light of that, the heinous betrayal of Judas. He, he knew about that place too, didn't he? And he used the, his knowledge about his former friends and, and, and Jesus Christ to betray them. And so he, he seized the opportunity and, and procures a cohort of soldiers, Roman soldiers, and, and more than that, the officers of the high priest and, and the Pharisees themselves. And, and he went there, as the text tells us, with, they went there with lanterns and, and torches and weapons. And what we see here is what Jesus told his disciples all along, that the world hates him. The world hates our Savior, Jesus Christ, and this is what we see here as they, as they march out against him. And isn't it interesting as we think about this, this scene, how every power in this world joined their forces. It's not only the religious authorities that come together. It is the civil government we, we read that Judas, he procured a cohort of soldiers. And, and if you look that word up, it, it, it refers to the, to the tenth of a legion, which is roughly around 200 to 600 soldiers. 200 to 600 soldiers just, just to, to arrest one man. And, and together with the temple officers and the Pharisees, and, and they are all armed to the teeth. Why? To arrest a single man who, in fact, never did anything wrong. He, he knew and obeyed the law perfectly. He healed people. He, he taught them well. He taught them to love one another. Jesus, the meek and gentle, the light of the world. And, and the Apostle John, in the beginning, in the opening of this gospel, he calls him the one full of grace and truth. What an irony to see those men marching out against the light of the world. A whole village turned into an angry mob, and they march out to arrest and kill the Prince of Peace. Can you imagine? what the, the, the disciples must have thought. This is, this is their place. This is their garden. And, and they, they, they were expecting a wonderful time. And now they, they see and maybe 
see the lanterns and torches and they hear this angst-inducing host of army marching out, hundreds and hundreds of, of soldiers, and they would hear them and, and hear the, those marches in, in lockstep. This is, this is the end. This is, they are done. This, this was it. And we know that at this point they weren't the, the brightest disciples. They were, they were cowardly and weak. And they had so much to learn still. They weren't ready to face an opposition like that, were they? And maybe they thought about fleeing. They, they knew the area. Maybe if they split up and, and everybody goes into a different direction, they could have make it, made it. They would have had a head start. Well, if we think about this, how often do we think like that? Coming to a place, being in a situation, and it's terrible. The trials are too, too heavy. Difficult, difficulties in our lives, too heavy to carry. And we ask, why would God bring us into this situation? Shouldn't he know better? Shouldn't he know better that this would happen? And the text tells us, and it's, it's wonderful how the text tells us that Jesus, in verse 4, knowing all that would happen to him. Yes, the answer is Jesus knew. Jesus knew what would happen next, and, and he still chose this place, and he chose to gather together with them there for this very reason, because he knew what would happen, and he knew he had to go through, through all of that. And sometimes we have to go through situations like that, because there's a purpose. There's a purpose in that. It's not in vain. And Jesus here, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. And that brings us to our next point. Jesus reveals himself to the opposition. Jesus knew what would happen, and he went anyway. He was aware that Judas knows about that place. He was with them before. And that he's using it, he's going to use it against him. And often we think that Jesus, knowing what, what happened, what will happen, made, made his suffering a little less severe. But actually, the opposite is the fact. His foreknowledge rendered his suffering most terrible. Just, just think about it. You, 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 you're getting diagnosed with, with an illness, and it might or might not kill you. But you have, you have always this hope you hold fast to. There's a slight hope that, that you will survive. There are doctors and physicians. There are different treatments. And, and above all, there's, there's God who can intervene. And so you always hold on to that hope that it will turn out okay. But Jesus here, he knew what would come next. And for Jesus, there was no hope of, of getting out of it. There was no hope to be expected. And he could have gone to a different place, couldn't he? Lay low for a while. And yet, he went to this place because he knew what he had to do. And he went to the garden Gethsemane 
we know from the other Gospels that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. But, but John, he omits the title, and there's a, a, there's a reason for it. Because what do you think of when you hear the word garden in the Bible? Where, do, where does your mind go to? Well, you, your mind should go to the garden in Genesis, the very first garden, where Adam and Eve were placed into by, by God and, and where they lived in fellowship with God. But they, they failed to keep God's law. They failed to trust God and, and they fell into sin. The first Adam who failed and fell and sinned. And, and, and God, he, he came down and he confronted Adam and Eve. And what did they do? They hid him, themselves. They hid him, them, him, themselves, knowing that they were guilty. And we read that even though they were guilty, God was still merciful to them. And he took animal skin and he shed blood and he covered them and clothed them. And we have here Jesus, in a certain way, picking up that story. He is in the garden. He never failed to obey God. He never failed to trust God fully. And yet, he's facing judgment and death. And there's no mercy for him from God. No mercy, but the wrath of God. And, and what does he do? He's not hiding. Even though he's not guilty. There's no guilt to be found in him. And yet he's not hiding. He steps willingly. He steps forward. Other than, than Adam. And again we see the irony here. And, and think about Jesus' ministry. As he was healing people and teaching. And the people were amazed and wanted to make him king. And what does he do? He, he slips through the crowd. And, and he hides himself. But when the soldiers come to arrest him and to kill him, when, when the cross awaits, he's not hiding, he, he steps forward. He's willing to take the wrath of God upon his shoulders. And, and again, we see another irony. It is not God who comes to get him. It is not the holy God coming down, but the wicked and sinful man marching out against Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the very person who, who upholds every and each one of them. And he's the one who steps forward and, and, and does not hide. We see how faithful Jesus is to his own words that, that he spoke in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This is what Jesus is starting to do. And, and it couldn't be more dramatic. There's the world on one side clashing against the Son of God. And he asked them, whom do you seek? And the answer is Jesus of Nazareth. They're using this derogative name of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. No one thought good about people from Nazareth. And, and here are the soldiers thinking they would simply arrest a common, a common soldier, a, a common criminal, a common criminal from Nazareth, Nazareth, like any other day. They had no idea with whom they were dealing with, and, and, and they were blind in, in, this, in their sins, blinded by their sin. 
And Jesus, he, he gives them a glimpse of who he is. And he's answering them. You are looking for Jesus from Nazareth. Let me tell you who I am. And, and he says these wonderful words in the Greek, ego, me, I am who I am. These words echoes the words from Exodus that we read just earlier this morning. When God revealed himself to Moses, saying, I am who I am. Jesus here, his answer is twofold. He's saying, yes, I am Jesus from Nazareth. I am a son of, the son of man. I am human, but I'm also the son of God. I am who I am. I am fully God and fully man. And here's this wonderful scene. When, when Jesus said that, they drew back and they all fell to the ground. Imagine hundreds and hundreds of soldiers flying through the air and, and, and being put to the ground. This word means more than just stumbling. It is, it, they fall, they, they fell, and they were thrown to, to the ground in devotion. The word incarnate speaks a mere word, and they fall prostrate before him. Isn't that an, an amazing uh, display of God's power? Jesus reveals who really is in charge. He is Lord over everybody. And one day every knee will bow and, and every tongue will confess. Martin Luther said, had Christ not addressed them again, they would lying there to this very day. And another theologian, he said, he might as well have thrown them down to hell. And this is a wonderful truth. It is true for us. Jesus could have thrown all of us down into hell for our sins. But he's, he's merciful. He's full of grace. And this is why we're here. We worship Christ because he was gracious to us. But here Jesus showed them mercy once again and, and give, gave them another day to live, another week to repent. And, and we know that at least one of those soldiers in a couple of hours will see Jesus Christ hanging on the cross and, and confessing that this was truly the Son of Man, uh, the Son of God. And this is and makes what Jesus does next all the more remarkable. He's not only willing to step forward, but he's surrendering. Of all the things he could have done, he surrenders. And this brings us to our last point. Jesus gives himself up for his disciples, and he submits to the opposition. He truly fulfills his promise. And we see that, or we can, we can imagine the, the, the disciples standing there and seeing how Jesus throws every, everyone down to the ground and they get all, all excited, all fired up. Finally, this is, this is the moment he's taking over. He will be king on this earth. This is what they're waiting for. And then Jesus is giving himself up and surrendering. And, and, and Peter, he's not agreeing with that. And he, he, he draws a sword and he, he, he strikes at the soldier 
Peter had no idea what he was doing. This, this kind of sword, you, you, you rather stab someone with that. You don't swing for somebody. He wanted to take or fulfill God's promises by, by a forceful, uh, in, with force. But Jesus says, put your, put your sword back into your sheath. I already asked my father if there's another way. I already had this conversation and there is no other way. I have to drink the cup that the father has given me. This is the only way. And, and so Jesus, he, he comes forward and he identifies himself again. And he points to his disciples and, and makes sure that nobody would touch them. He says, so if you seek me, let, let these men go. This is not a question or a suggestion from, by Jesus. This is, this is a command. Let them go. And this is a wonderful comfort to us. What a beautiful and loving care of Jesus Christ. He steps forward. He gives himself up. He gives himself up and he protects his disciples. He's determined to finish this way for his sheep. And he says, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. He just displayed his great power and what what he could have done, as he said, when he said, Ego and me. And he has the power, sh- surely, to wipe everyone out, but instead he offers himself up for, for his sheep, for his flock, and he demonstrates not only his great power, but here he demonstrates his love for his people. The only one who, 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 who doesn't deserve to get arrested and put to death, who never did anything wrong, He's giving himself up as a substitute, knowing that he will face death and divine judgment. And this is the great exchange, what the reformers were talking of. His life for mine. His righteousness for my sin. Do you see the the wonderful implication we have here? Yes, we have many trials and, and tribulations in this life. Many, many oppositions that we are facing as we go through this evil world. We all have health issues and financial issues and, and dealing with, with sometimes issues within the family. Those are real sufferings. And there were real soldiers standing in front of the disciples. And Jesus knew they weren't ready to face, face those. And so he steps forward. Jesus steps forward every time we face something that we can't handle on our own. But you see, what, what was the greatest burden, what the greatest trial, the, the greatest uh, problem for the disciples? It was not necessarily the soldiers. That, that was the immediate opposition right now, but it was not the greatest problem. If Jesus wouldn't step forward... They wouldn't just face those soldiers, but one day they would, say, they would face God himself. The greatest problem for, this, for the disciples was their sin. And Jesus, what he's doing here, he's stepping forward to go this, this way of suffering and to go all the way to the cross and to mount their guilt and offenses against God on his back. 
and to pay for those sins, for the guilt. You see, the greatest problem in in life is not our health, our finances, our families. It is our sin, our guilt. And the way and the fact that we, we, we will one day stand before a holy and righteous God. But but hidden in Christ, we stand under his his protection. We are clothed with his righteousness. And this is what he did here, starting to do. He he went all the way to the cross, paying for our sins drinking the cup for, for us on our behalf. And, and he was raised on the third day, and he conquered our greatest enemy. He conquered sin and death. It is true that we so often fail to keep our promises. But what we see in this text is that Jesus, he will never fail to keep his promise. He actually already did fulfill his promise when he went to the cross. And when he rose, he he has proven that he conquered death and sin. I remember my youngest daughter when she was two years old. My wife taught her about God and how faithful he is and that he's not able to lie. And, and on that evening, she, she prayed, Father, I thank you. Oh God, I thank you that you cannot lie. A, a, a little girl, not comprehending what she's saying, but... This is just a wonderful truth that God, what he said, and what he says is yes and amen. We can rest and trust that God will never leave nor forsake us. But there's also a warning here in this text. Think about the soldiers who are standing on the other side. Think think of those who don't trust in, in Jesus Christ. They will stand before God and no one will step in between. But with Jesus, we don't have to fear anything in this world. There's no army in the world that can separate us from his love. There's no wicked man, not even Satan himself, who can accuse us of our guilt. Every time he does, Jesus steps forward and he says, let him go because I have taken care of it. I have paid for his sin. And this is why we love Jesus, because he gave himself up for for us, and he paid for our sins with, with his blood. And so we can now rest in him. Rest in him and believe believe in him and, and know that we are saved from our greatest problem, from sin itself. Let us bow one once again and then praise God for what he has done. In Jesus Christ. Amen. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful text, for your word that we marvel of your love. We marvel of what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ, who was full of compassion, care, and love. Even though he knew what would happen to him, he did not shy back. He stepped forward willingly to be a substitution for for us. And we can rest assured that we will never be tempted beyond our strength. Jesus Christ, he 
is at the right hand of, of you, Father, always interceding for us. We thank you that you not only saved us, but that you keep us from falling away. And as we, we face a lot of evil in this world, a lot of pain, a lot of trials, we thank you that we can rest in you, knowing that you already took care of our greatest problem, that you saved us from our sins. We thank you for the redemption in Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and we praise you for that in his name. Amen.